from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So that's such an image there that that first section ends with. And I imagine there's a lot of white people hearing that and thinking, oh, man, like we, we feel seen in a way that's, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, I uh, removed and put that line back in about 10 times. Um, and, and then I thought, how can you write a poem about St. Louis without talking about this? Yeah. Um, What made you want to take it out? I'm Sarah Fenske. Dana Levin's new book of poetry confronts many things. The conflict between body and soul, the 2016 presidential election, the feeling of disorientation that can overwhelm us. And it also confronts St. Louis. Dana took a job here as distinguished writer-in-residence at Maryville University in 2015. And so her new book features work written as she made the leap from Santa Fe and faced this city's history and customs, even while she squared up to the Trump years and her own mortal coil. (laughs) That book is called Now Do You Know Where You Are? And it's out this month from Copper Canyon Press. Dana Levin, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. I love this show. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm so happy to hear you say that. And I'm so excited to discuss this poetry because it was just great. Um, But first, I want to get some grounding for our listeners. You're from California. Yes. You were living in Santa Fe. You took this job in Maryville. Did St. Louis feel like an alien world to you (laughs) when you first got here? (laughs) Well, um, in a way, I mean, I've lived... Um, on the East Coast. I've lived in New York City. I grew up in Southern California. I was in 19 years in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And even though my parents are from Chicago, they went to California in the 50s. A lot of Chicagoans did that. Yeah. The whole family, a lot of the whole family went. So I grew up, I think, with Midwest values and child of immigrant values. Mm -hmm. Um, But coming here was amazing to me because what did I know? I knew Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh boy! That, I mean, that wasn't even filmed here. That's filmed on a, a soundstage. <laughs> and and you know, I moved here in the wake of Ferguson yeah. and um, the death of Michael Brown, and uh, it was really uh, eye-opening. Yeah, yeah. And there were so many discussions happening at that time in St. Louis that I think were new to so many St. Louisans. Things that people had never grappled with. And then you're kind of like jumping right into the deep end, a brand new person, also trying to make sense of this history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just I don't even know where to begin. For instance, just thinking about Ferguson, for instance, talking with a friend about what happened and, you know, just even names like the names for things, you know, people casually calling it a riot and then realizing that other people were calling it a protest mm-hmm. and realizing that the gulf between the word riot and the word protest told you so much about the culture and the history and the politics of St. Louis. And I just felt like I had moved to the navel of the nation. Everything that is uh, promising about America, everything that is 
pathological about America. It is all right here. And that so comes across in some of the poems in this book. Um, There's a poem called Two Autumns, St. Louis. Now, this is a long poem. It goes in many different directions. You've agreed to read for us today the first section. Yes. Uh, My dear friend Janet Edwards, when I first got here, drove me around St. Louis. She's born and bred. And one of the things we we did was go to Calvary Cemetery. And this is pretty much what happened. Driving up Union to get there, all the yard signs saying, we must stop killing each other. A sign blaring, crispy snoot. An abandoned two-story with the windows blown out, a cooler and a bucket on the porch roof outside a second-story window. At Calvary Cemetery, groundskeeper Lambert, like the airport. What are you looking for? Tennessee Williams. Say it again. We asked to see the graves of Tennessee Williams, Dred Scott, and Kate Chopin. He obliged with the first two, but as to the third, he hadn't heard of her. On his own, he showed us four things. The hill where all the priests were buried. The large hill, empty of markers. That's where the mass graves are, cholera, diphtheria, real wrath of God stuff. We don't dig there, ever. A giant wasp nest hanging in the crook of a cross-shaped headstone. How close do you want to get? The tomb where that old St. Louisan with the two names is buried, how she had been in cotton and asked to be buried on the tallest hill overlooking the river so she could watch the loading from on high. Later, Janet says, I can't find any record of that. Lucas Hunt. There had been copper siding on the entry to her tomb, but thieves took it and sold it for scrap. So, too, the giant Lincoln penny medallion set in a nearby obelisk. Some groundskeeper had even seen the man prying it out, stashed it in his backpack, and took off running. You can see the empty circle and where the crowbar went in. Janet says, so someone steals a giant penny, but other people leave real ones on the headstone of Dred Scott. The stone signifies someone visited, also flowers, beer, money, photographs, marijuana, toys, jewelry, clothes. People steal them, or they're picked up every two weeks and thrown away. Animals that live at the cemetery, raccoons, coyotes, squirrels, hawks, foxes. Paul, who comes every day and stays for hours, pulling flowers from the trash and redistributing them among the dead. Fiery plastic flower adorning the stone of the playwright's sister, Rose. Later, talking about Ferguson over muscles at Peacemakers, nothing but white people in the room. So that's such an image there that that first section ends with. And I imagine there's a lot of white people hearing that and thinking, oh, man, like we we feel seen in a way that's that's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, I... uh, removed and put that line back in about 10 times. Um, and, and then I thought, how can you write a poem about St. Louis without talking about this? Yeah. Um, what made you want to take it out? I was afraid. Yeah. I, I just was afraid to touch the subject of race. And you know, the thing about St. Louis that is just so marvelous and horrible and educational is the the wound of racism it, that plagues America is right here and it's living and it's all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've lived anywhere where it was so obvious to me and everywhere to me. Um, I mean, I've lived in 
segregated places. Mm -hmm. um, Santa Fe, New Mexico can be a very segregated place between white people and Native Americans and uh, Hispanics. Mm -hmm. But there's something about St. Louis where it's, I don't know, it's just everywhere. I don't even yeah. really know how to say it. But yeah. I, so I was afraid. I was afraid. And but then I thought, you've got to get over it because we all got to get over it. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we, we, have to, we have to do this, feel this, look at it. Well, and once you got over it, I mean, you were all in. I mean, the, this poem's second section, this get, it, it's called A Parade of Horribles. Ugh, yeah. This is a direct reference to the Dred Scott decision. Yes. I, first of all, when I found that phrase, I just couldn't believe it because it's poetry gold. Um, <laughs> and here it is. You know, people think of this as like a rhetorical <laughs> device used in the law. Yeah. And a poet sees it and is like, this is the one part of the law that's poetry. Yeah. Well, it's a, so I, there's a note in the back of the book that says it's a rhetorical device employing a series of progressively more terrible results following from an act. So so the parade of horribles in the Dred Scott decision was basically like, if you give citizenship to Dred Scott, uh, black people are going to be able to go wherever they want, whenever they want. And that's the parade of horribles. Right. And when you read the decision, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I just, I was like, wow. Yeah. So you went, you did that research. You read that decision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That led you to a great second section. You have something else in here that this part of the poem made me laugh out loud. You write about visiting T.S. Eliot's birthplace. <laughs> Can you, you've got this open here. Can you just read for us? This is such a short section, but it's so I'm, – I'm just laughing yeah. hard. Um, uh, I'm Jewish. Um, T.S. Eliot was, was a terrible anti-Semite, so that's the background to this poem. Important he background. Also, but he was also my – First introduction and first love for poetry. So yeah. it's a complicated, it's complicated relationship between me and Tom. Uh, this section is called "Standing Outside the Fenced-In Parking Lot That Was Your Childhood Home." It's exciting to be living in the city that birthed T.S. Eliot, even though he was a casual anti-Semite, like so many of his class and breed. Lishana tova, Tom. My grandmother spits three times. I stand here D-Lev, one of the roughs, aspirated, liberally educated, shtetl-fed. I love it. D-Lev, one of the roughs. Like, you're having some fun with that. And, and I think yeah. there's, there's parts of your poetry that just made me laugh, even as you're dealing with some really serious topics. It made me wonder about your feelings about T.S. Eliot. Can you still enjoy his poetry knowing what you know about how he felt about your people? Yeah, I mean, I can. I think... I think when we get caught in the binary between this was great art and the person who made it was a horrible person. Yeah. And that somehow we have to choose between the two. We are uh, losing um, an opportunity to look at human nature. And, and I'm a teacher. So like there's also an educational opportunity too. Like mm -hmm. every single person is going to have to decide for themselves if they still want to read T.S. Eliot, finding out that he hated Jewish people. But just having the conversation and just having to look at the look at, you know, the way that we whitewash literally sometimes the people that we venerate um, for the art that they make and then find out they were awful. Yeah, <laughs> they were awful people. I don't personally believe that um, somebody should stop reading or teaching T.S. Eliot. He's in, he's central. He's he's important. He's also a great poet. Yeah. I mean, he's written some of the greatest poems of the 20th century, but. It you have to you have to teach the whole man. Yeah, I think you can't leave that part out. No. 
So that kind of brings us to what, to me, is the theme that kept coming up again and again as I'm reading this book. That is the conflict between body and soul. (laughs) Here's a line from one of these poems. How they infuse each other. How they hate each other. How most people pledge allegiance to one or the other. How painful it was to be such a split creature. Yeah. And I really felt that. And I, I feel like this is something that, that you keep revisiting. You're maybe a creature of the soul. <laughs> Am I getting this right? Uh, I'm a creature of the soul who has to constantly come back into my body. <laughs> yeah. And your body seems to drive you crazy in oh, some ways. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, my body is my body has seen travail. Um, and um, sometimes I wish I could reincarnate as like one of those great athletes who just is effortlessly inside their body, and yeah. but my body's not like that. Um, well, you bring this all the way back to your birth. I yeah. mean, you were born with this RH disease where, like, your mother's body was literally trying to fight you off. Yes. I mean, that's there's some poetry in that. Oh, yes. Oh, that says everything about our relationship, too. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I was born with RH disease, and so they had to induce labor and give me a complete blood transfusion, and then the blood didn't take somewhere. Um, so it turned out to be a part of my intestine was turning gangrenous, so they had to remove it. So I had surgery when I was six days old and um, and then was put in an incubator for the first two months of my life and had a colostomy bag. And um, one of the things that I did for a long poem that's pretty central to the book called Appointment was I started to investigate, like, the procedures and the tools that – allowed me to live. And I ended up reading a lot of amazing obituaries in the New York Times of these primarily British scientists, British doctors, who were trying to figure out how to deal with, uh, you know, infants who needed blood transfusions or who needed surgery or whatever. So I'm very grateful to doctors. That's the other great thing about being in St. Louis. I'm like, oh, here I am in a medical mecca. (laughs) (laughs) There are physicians everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We are talking today to Dana Levin. Her new book is Now Do You Know Where You Are? That conflict between body and soul, your mother's body that wanted to kill you, and, (laughs) you know, now your body that still bears the scars of that. And then as you acknowledge in the poem where you're confronting this, the bodies that, that kind of had to volunteer to suffer. Yeah. You came very close to being a baby who would have been born and, and probably died from this. Yeah. And instead, there's a treatment uh, just narrowly sort of beat your birth into being. But but people suffered for this. They did. They There were 600, quote unquote, volunteers from the Sing Sing prison in New York City. I don't know how voluntary that was. Yeah. There were all of these women who agreed to be part of the study to get the vaccine, because it was a vaccine, um, who had already suffered a lot of miscarriages. My mother had many miscarriages before mm-hmm. she brought me to term and, and both of my sisters. Um, and I just, I started to think about this phrase, the suffering exchange, but I liked thinking about it not as a verb, but like as a place, like the stock exchange, like that's where we live. We live in the suffering exchange, and we're trading suffering, you know, all the time. And, you know, you can sit there and be like, wow, this world, it's a veil of tears. And, and it is. But, like, then I, as I get older, I think about, well, then what helps us deal with being stuck in the suffering exchange? And, I, you know, I just come back to kindness and compassion and education and trying to give everybody the best as possible the benefit of the doubt yeah. in dailiness. Like, you know, everybody's having a bad day. Everybody's having a hard time. 
right? Yeah. So I'm always trying to remind myself that that's what going that that is what is going on when somebody's short with me or impatient or treats me in a way that I don't like. And then I, I try to also watch this in myself. Because yeah. I don't think the suffering exchange is going to go away. <laughs> I think, yeah, we all need to come to terms with that. <laughs> and, you know, something else you mentioned in here, you're talking about the suffering exchange doesn't go away. Um, you know, you have this conversation with your chiropractor and you're understanding how viruses also help form us. I yeah. think you, know, you have a very realistic view of the terrible things in life and how those are those are the building blocks of this existence uh, that we have to kind of make the most of. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, again, getting trapped in the binaries is, 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 the, is just the problem with the human brain because I think everything is usually both and. Mm-hmm. So um, viruses kill us and viruses also help to create human consciousness. Um, you know, the pandemic has been awful, but I can't lie and say that the my life slowing down wasn't helpful to me mm-hmm. um, or that my new attention to trying to be healthier with my body wasn't bad for me. You know, like, yeah. so, um, and, you know, maybe that's just a cast of mind that helps you get through life, get through the suffering exchange. What can I yeah. get out of this? It might be good. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, like, what can I learn from this? Yeah. I mean, I, I like that. I mean, you're finding ways to at least think about it that allow you to say, okay, I can I can continue in this world. This yeah. is not all horrible. Yeah. Where do you think that mindset comes from for you? <laughs> wow. Um, well, some of it, I think, is being a daughter of immigrants who fled violence and prejudice um, in Russia and Poland as Jewish people. And, you know, Jews are famous for their uh, sardonic sense of humor. And for sure, like some of my favorite childhood memories involve, you know, grandparents and great uncles and aunts telling the most horrific stories. But there's always some little angle of humor inside of it. And it would usually end up with uproarious laughing. And I think the laughing sort of comes, A, from having survived, you know, and B, just also the absurd, the absurdity of treating people so horribly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's So I think that does it. And also, you know, Buddhism has been really helpful to me. Just the idea that, like, you know, if you want to get it down to a nutshell, we're all going to die. So let us be kind to one another. No, kind to one another. It just, it's an ethic that I can, I can roll with. Yeah. And my sister, who helps me live my life. So. Well, these are these are all good tips. I feel like this is a great testimonial for Buddhism. People <laughs> listening on this Good Friday, T.S. Eliot would not have been happy with that little testimonial. Here's <laughs> yeah, your not. revenge. <laughs> I'm Tom. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Dana Levin, I have so enjoyed talking to you, and I have so enjoyed reading this book. So so thank you so much for oh, joining thanks us. Thanks for having me on the show. And Dana is a distinguished writer in residence at Maryville University. Uh, her new book is Now Do You Know Where You Are? And I have to flag an appearance here. Dana will appear with Diane Seuss and Jane Huffman in a Facebook Live reading. This is sponsored by Left Bank Books. It's happening this Tuesday, April 19th at 7 p.m. We have a link um, as well as details on our website. That's stlonair.show. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.